This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. When it comes to mysteries that people have wondered about for the course of the last 80 years or so, I don't think there's one that's better known than the mystery of what happened to Judge Crater. Now, maybe the only thing that comes close to that is what became of Jimmy Hoffa and Jimmy Hoffa's remains. But you got to keep in mind, there were 30, 40 years of people wondering about Judge Crater before folks ever dreamed that Jimmy Hoffa would go missing. So uh, Jimmy Hoffa may have a lot of modern-day pop cultural references on his side, but Judge Crater certainly has longevity, and I believe now, we'll find out for sure in a minute, but I believe he is actually the missingest person in the history of New York. So who was Judge Crater? Why did he go missing? Is there any chance we'll ever find out for sure what became of him? Does it make sense to even talk about reopening this case? Those are a few of the questions that we have for Stephen Regal. He, among his um, many, many areas of expertise, he is the author of the book Finding Judge Crater, A Life and Phenomenal Disappearance in Jazz Age New York. Stephen, good morning. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning, Frank. My pleasure. So, Stephen, I uh, you asked me when we were setting up this interview how I came across your book. It's because it's really one of the very few books on Judge Crater that I was able to come across. And it surprised me a little bit that there wasn't more written about him because his case has been so well known since the 1930s. So let me ask you the question, what made you choose to write about Judge Crater? Well, um, I started the book way back in the 1980s, (laughs) to be be honest. Um, And at the time, there was um, a lot more recognition of the crater disappearance, Uh, like the New York Times every year on crater's disappearance anniversary would have an article about him. And I I think I read about it in the Times or – um, even New York Magazine may have had, like, in 1980, a uh, 50th anniversary story about it. And I just got very intrigued. I've always had a love of history uh, and the, the New York City history angle intrigued me. And and the other thing was it, it was completely, and it still is, completely unsolved. Crater disappearance is often compared to the Jimmy Hoffa. And I, I find the Hoffa much less interesting because you knew, you know who did Hoffa in. The question mm. is, you know, which... Uh, organized crime family or mobster was responsible. Uh, The Crater case is much more wide open. There was just always, there's been a multitude of different theories of what happened to him. That just the mystery of it really appealed to me. So how long did you work on this book for? I have to say probably about 25 wow. years. Wow. Um, I'm, a, I'm a practicing lawyer, so this was a kind of side project throughout. All right. For people that may not be up on the crater disappearance, uh, for people that might be a little younger and might not be as familiar with references to Judge Crater, before we discuss the circumstances of his disappearance, who exactly was he? He was um, a very prominent man in New York City in the 1920s, very accomplished lawyer, 
and had just been been appointed uh, by Franklin Roosevelt to the New York Supreme Court about six months before he disappeared. He was also very active in Tammany Hall, which was the political machine that ran New York City at the time. And he was a rather prominent person. He made a name in the city's nightlife. He was a womanizer, loved nightclubs, loved Broadway plays. So anyway, he, he, he was a very prominent person in the city, which uh, made his sudden disappearance from the middle of Broadway on the night of August 6th, 1930, just an incredible story. It was the primary disappearance mystery in the 1930s, 1940s, even up to the 1950s. It had huge name recognition. It's mentioned in cultural things like the Marx Brothers, um, a Marx Brothers play, movies. It it had a real uh, cultural cachet, which of course, 90 years later, it does not have as much. Let's talk about the circumstances surrounding his uh, di- disappearance. You said it was August of 1930. Now, what was happening in New York at the time? What was sort of the the backdrop uh, politically, legally, judicially to what was going on at the time that he disappeared in August of 1930? That's a good part of the research I did on this book is just looking back to see what was happening, you know, in the papers at the time. It was at the end of the Roaring Twenties, the um, the stock market crash of 1929 had happened, but the city and the United States was not yet into the Great Depression as we know it. Um, it was still the last vestiges of the uh, the jazz age, the Roaring Twenties. It was a time of prohibition, also a time of, gr- of great violation of the prohibition laws, um, was bootlegging. The uh, nightclubs were becoming uh, very prominent, still very prominent um, in the late 20s, early 1930s, where gangsters would be hanging around in the clubs with the politicians. A real mixed crowd of uh, socialites would go there. Sometimes there was gunplay in the nightclubs. The lights would go out and uh, there would be shootings. So it, it was still, I would say, part of the Roaring Twenties. Governor Roosevelt had, Franklin Roosevelt had, just been elected governor in 1928. And as I said, he was who appointed Crater. And he had his eye on um, the presidency. He had a plan, a well-mapped-out plan that he was going to run for the presidency in 1932. And and a lot of that, his campaign for re-election that fall, ties together very much with the crater disappearance. It was, there were beginning to be Tammany scandals popping up in 1929 and 1930. And, you know, they would continue to to pop up until Jimmy Walker was 
ultimately deposed in 1932. For people that aren't, right, okay, I was just going to say, for people that aren't familiar with Jimmy Walker, he or Gentleman Jimmy Walker, he was the former mayor of New York City that was removed as part of the Seabury Commission uh, by uh, Governor FDR. Right. Exactly. So it was, um, but the whole 1920s were a very corrupt period, especially in New York because of Tammany Hall, which really had an iron grip on the city at the time. And one of the themes of the book is that New York was just about to change radically because of the Great Depression and the country. Transformations would begin in the city that would make it so that in the book I say if Crater had had reappeared five years after his disappearance, he w- he literally wouldn't have recognized the city. Oh. Uh, T- Tammany Hall had been deposed. There were all kinds of social and economic changes that I think Crater, if he had returned, you know, that decade would have just been stunned of how much his city had changed. We're talking with Stephen Regal. He's the author of the book Finding Judge Crater, A Life and Phenomenal Disappearance in Jazz Age, New York. So you mentioned he disappeared in August of 1930. Who was the last person to see him? Where was the last place that he was seen? Under what circumstances was he last seen? He um, was on coming out of a um, restaurant on West 45th Street in Manhattan. He had just run into a friend, a friend of his, who was with his girlfriend, flapper girlfriend, and they had had dinner. And he, they all walked outside. And he hailed a taxi cab and he got into the taxi cab. His friend and the friend's girlfriend walked down the block. That was literally the last time he's ever been seen or heard from dead or alive. So, and so there's a lot of questions where that taxi cab was going. Part of the, the reason that the case got off to a very bad start was it his disappearance did not become public knowledge until almost a month after he got into the taxi cab. So the the trail was was cold to start out with. And they actually tried to find the taxi cab driver. You know, they put in ads in the papers and the taxi driver never was identified or located. So that that was a major drawback for the New York Police Department because they the reason that it was delayed the announcement of his disappearance was his family and friends were certain that he was on a bender mm. or something and something that could destroy his judicial career or that he was off with a, a woman and they intentionally did not go to the police and it, just that delay in a month really put them at a disadvantage from the start. So given what we know and the limitations of that investigation because of the delay in reporting the disappearance, what are some of the key theories as to what happened to him? There's just been uh, such so many of them. They're probably the, the most accepted because of his womanizing 
was that he was blackmailed by a, a girlfriend. He was married at the time, but he kept a mistress in one of the hotels and frequented the nightclubs and the chorus girls lines and that type of thing. So um, that became probably the most prominent initial theory that he was blackmailed and that something went wrong and he was killed. Another theory that um, especially his friends stuck to was he was a random victim of, uh, he was thought to be carrying a large amount of money when he disappeared. And many of his friends said he, he just was happened to be showed the money on the street, was robbed and killed. And then there are other theories that work he did as a lawyer before he got on the bench, particularly a foreclosure in a um, ritzy hotel on the Lower East Side, that his involvement as a receiver at the hotel, that there was some hanky-panky going on with the for foreclosure, and that he was bumped off by some of the people involved in the foreclosure. Some people think he, um, you know, as I said, he frequented the nightclubs where there were gangsters. Some people think, thought uh, he was bumped off by an organized crime figure, uh, mm. Jack Legs Diamond or someone like him, uh, because of his involvement in politics uh, and, and the Tammany Hall machine, which was very allied with organized crime at the time he disappeared. So, but, but uh, was, and, and, was Judge... and there's always people who, who thought he voluntarily fled and is living, ended up living in Australia or China. But ju <laughs> ju Judge Crater was a Tammany person, right? So why would, if, if the mob was in league with Tammany Hall, why would the mob be responsible for his disappearance? Well, because he he may have, uh, I, I mean, I don't, don't want to give too much away, but he associated with some very prominent Tammy Hall leaders, uh, district leaders who were very powerful at the time. And, you know, another theory was that he was involved in the Tammany corruption and the Tammany people were afraid he would talk. So I see. he was sil silenced effectively. I and see. They would have hired a, a, a mob man uh, to gangster to, to bump him off. And what do, when he's referred to as the missingest person in the history of New York, what exactly does that title mean, if anything? You know, I, I've seen that quite a bit. And um, <laughs> I haven't really seen an explanation right. whether he was more missing than another person who disappeared <laughs> from the city or what. I, I never really saw where that came from. <laughs> Got it. Now, you, yeah. you, you mentioned Tammany Hall and the, ro the role that they played in New York politics and in the New York judiciary at the time. Uh, and people just tuning in, we're talking about the disappearance of former New York State Supreme Court Justice uh, Judge Crater. Was his disappearance a factor at all in the downfall of Tammany Hall? There was the um, Seabury Commission, uh, which uh, a couple of years 
actually was started about when he disappeared. And that's often given credit as, you know, what broke Tammany Hall's back. But in my book, I really say that the crater disappearance was really the big initial impetus to uh, Tammany's Hall, Tammany Hall's downfall. That it really, um, there was all kinds of political rumors that were, some of them involved Governor Roosevelt, amazingly. Uh, in retrospect, you think of him as quite an upstanding man, but uh, even he was sort of talked of as being involved in his disappearance. I, I don't give any credence to that, but but they were very um, politically um turbulent times when he disappeared. And I, and I think his was really, his disappearance was the first nail in Tammany's coffin, so to speak. Un- understood. Uh, talking with Stephen Regal, uh, attorney and the author of the book, Finding Judge Crater. I remember about uh, 16 or 17 years ago, there was a series of articles that there was some sort of major breakthrough having to do with a a dead woman's note in this case. And there was thinking that that could result in some new information about that case. What exactly was uh, that note? Who was the dead woman? And what was the thought about a breakthrough? And what became of any lead in that case? Yeah. I mean, there's a famous uh, cover of the New York Post, which I have. Um, the in bold letters it says, "I killed Judge Crater," and then you open inside, and the article that they broke was some relatives of an old woman who had just died were going through her belongings, and they found a, a I think it was a box of letters. And in one of the letters, she said that she knew what happened to Judge Crater. And she she implicated her husband, uh, who had been dead a number of years, and her husband's brother. And the story was they were in the taxi that Judge Crater got into got into on West 45th Street, and they basically hijacked the taxi and um, – brought him to Coney Island, where he was killed for really uncertain reasons. But the the story was that he was buried under the uh, where before the New York Aquarium out in Coney Island was built, and that he was buried under it before it had been built and naturally gave rise to jokes that he was, you know, swimming with the fishes. (laughs) But anyway, the police, uh, the NYPD reopened the case in 2005. I actually called because I was in the middle of my, and I figured I knew as much about it as, as anyone. I called and offered my services, but they declined. And they finally closed it a few months later, saying it was just some crazy old woman's scribblings and that they couldn't find any kind of verification of what she had written. So um, I'm guessing that means it's probably pretty unlikely that they would ever reopen this case again at this point. Yeah, I think I think that was the last hurrah. I think in 2006 they closed it. And yeah, I, I can't imagine. Although I, I think there 
may be a possibility and um, that he may be buried up in Yonkers. I don't want to give away the whole story of the book, but there is some evidence which the police looked at. This came out, that's that's another problem with the Crater case. Some of the evidence did not come out until 20 years after the disappearance. And some of the key evidence, I think, judging from the police files and uh, my research, uh, came out in 1955. And again, I won't, it's it's kind of an amazing story. There, There's a, a faint possibility that he may be buried up at a location hmm. in Yonkers, which I don't want to really uh, make public or anything, um, because I think it's a very faint chance. Hmm. But there's a certain property that the police never really looked at. Again, I had nowadays with the technology they have, you know, they can scan for dead bodies, you know, without even digging, you know, through sonar and stuff. So so there there's a faint possibility I, I'm gonna to try to pursue it that he could still be buried up in Yonkers. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, and I remember the New York Times wrote about a proper, uh, a possible Yonkers connection to his disappearance way back in 1964. Uh, so that is interesting that uh, that they're still talking about the possibility of a, a Yonkers connection. When you write a book about events that happened 50, 60 years before you start writing, it, it, I imagine it's difficult to call up many eyewitnesses that were present for the events that you're depicting. What were your sources for for the book, did you rely primarily on on media reports uh, and other other written accounts of what was going on at the time, or were there still people around that you could interview? Um, I did interview um, a couple of people. One of which, amazingly, was a very prominent lawyer named Simon Rifkind, who is uh, was a partner in the firm of Paul Weiss, Rifkind, Garrison, and then. I forget the last name, but very prominent New York law firm. He happened to be a protege of Crater's, and he himself was an incredibly upstanding, talented man. He became a U.S. district judge. He started this uh, mega firm in New York that's still going. But he worked in Crater's law office when he was a young lawyer, and he was totally impressed by, he said, that man could taught me how to write a brief papers you file in court. And he said he he was just the most phenomenal brief writer he had ever met. And he was one of the friends of Crater who, who immediately, when the disappearance became public, he actually reported the disappearance to the police, adamantly maintained that Crater, he knew, was a totally upstanding lawyer and gentleman, couldn't have been involved in anything shady, and that he had to been accidentally killed in a robbery attempt. And I was able to, to call him up. This was in the 90s, early 90s. And, um, you know, he, I think he died the next year. So he was retired from law practice, but I met him in his office on Park Avenue, and I was hoping, you know, maybe he just wants to, to 
you know, lays cards out on the table, you know, right before. And so it was an interesting, I interviewed him for an hour and a half, <laughs> but he maintained, he stuck to the story. That creator was this incredibly upstanding, brilliant man who couldn't have been involved in um, Tammany Hall corruption or legal corruption. And that's another theme of the book. He he was like a like a almost like a Zelig character, if you remember the movie. Oh, Woody sure, Allen great Woody movie. Allen movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, he just led very different lives. Like there was this life of the upstanding lawyer and the judge, who Simon Rifkin knew. There was his life as a Tammany Hall politico. And there was a life, his life as a Broadway carouser and womanizer. And so he was kind of this multifaceted personality, which kind of really intrigued me. And um, that's another theme of the book, how I think the 1920s were the time, you know, Broadway was at its height. It's very theatrical period of time and so another theme is that that it was because of his time and place that he was able to kind of create this multi-personality you right. know this uh, on, yeah on, on that note uh, we're gonna have to end it there Stephen Regal I appreciate the time this morning uh, I'll look forward to checking out the book and if people are interested in learning more about Judge Crater's life and his disappearance uh, this is probably the definitive book on that subject again it's called Finding Judge Crater a life and phenomenal disappearance in jazz age New York thank you so much Stephen thank you Frank take care if you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Stephen Regal, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.